Hello and welcome to BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue BTN.com, and this is another football-focused edition of the Take 10 Podcast, where every week we break down what happened the past weekend of college football and look ahead to the upcoming weekend of college football with a national writer, get that national perspective. And uh, this week we welcomed on a writer from The Athletic. And The Athletic has been very good to us lately. These last two seasons, uh, pretty much the entire Take 10 podcast existence, as we've gotten many national perspectives from that outlet and uh, once again brought in a guest who did a great job bringing us into kind of the national framework and giving us an outside perspective. And this week that writer is Chantel Jennings of The Athletic. She's based out west in Portland, Oregon. So we got her uh, unique perspective and a perspective that we don't get all that often here on the Take 10 podcast from out west. So that was great, but we also brought Chantel in for her perspective on the Big Ten because one of her pieces in The Athletic this week highlighted a couple of decades-old debate between Nebraska and Michigan. And Nebraska and Michigan fans listening to this obviously know what I'm talking about. It's the 1997 national title debate when those two teams split the national title, went undefeated that year, and the debate is kind of, I guess you could say, raged on for 21 years now about who would have won the national title game that was never played between those two schools. So Chantel actually takes a really unique and cool angle in her story that actually dropped Tuesday on the athletic site, so definitely check that out, and we tell you how and where to find that coming up here. Takes a unique angle into a fake broadcast of that game that kind of was put on and played out by a Nebraska radio station and was kind of a cool alternate reality type I guess resolution to the greatest game never played as, as her article describes it so great conversation with Chantel so we got into her uh, process writing that piece and researching that piece and how it kind of fell into her lap and we also talked as we do every week on the Football Focus Editions of the Take 10 Podcast about college football landscape, what happened, and what's to come. So Chantel's interview is coming up. And after that, we did our regular Stat Head segment, which if you listen to the show, you know is a weekly, more in-depth statistical breakdown of what happened and what lies ahead with BTN's in-house researcher, Harold Shelton. So we brought Harold in, as always, like we do um, into the studio and got his perspective on a uh, week where the Big Ten lost seven games of non-conference opponents just a rough weekend overall and we kind of broke down what happened what went wrong and looked ahead to uh as the smoke is kind of cleared here to how the big 10 and some of its teams can recover and the, the past that lie ahead so packed episode here today we'll get to those interviews in just a moment and before we get to them just a quick reminder that you can subscribe to the take 10 podcast on a number of platforms including apple podcast or itunes Google Play, if you are on Android, you can get Podbean as well, and you can subscribe to the Big Ten Network YouTube page, where you can find all of the Take Ten Podcast episodes in a playlist, so that's just another avenue to find the Take Ten Podcast, so if you're listening on SoundCloud right now, get on one of those subscription platforms and subscribe, so you don't miss an episode going forward here on the show. Alright, so now we'll get to, like I mentioned at the top, our latest guest from The Athletic, that's Chantel Jennings. Chantel gets into college football uh, of the present, like I said, and of the past as well with a really cool story that she uh, wrote for The Athletic recently. And uh, enough of me talking about it. We'll let her describe it. We'll get into that interview right now. It's a Take 10 Podcast interview with Chantel Jennings. I'm very pleased to be joined by Chantel Jennings. She's a national college football writer for The Athletic, a strong proponent of the West Coast, Best Coast lifestyle, and you can follow her on Twitter at... Chantel Jennings. Chantel, thanks for jumping on. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's nice to, uh, as a graduate and as someone who grew up in Big Ten country, it's nice to be on the official podcast of the Big Ten country. Yeah, for sure. And it's a, a great week to have you on because uh, this week, Michigan and Nebraska are playing for the first time in several years. Uh, those two programs, of course, split the 1997 national championship and both went undefeated in dominant fashion, but they didn't end up playing each other that year. And today, you actually dropped a piece in The Athletic that had a really cool angle on what's been dubbed and what was dubbed in the headline of your story, The Greatest Game Never Played. So I'll let you describe kind of the unique perspective this piece provided and, and give fans an idea why they need to get over to The Athletic and, and check it out. Yeah, so I was, um, I kind of struck up a conversation with someone while I was reporting just a completely different piece in Charleston, South Carolina, 
we were both at lunch and he was also sitting at this like communal table and we started chatting and he was a pilot and so we were talking about flying because I think flying is both terrifying and interesting and um he found out that I was a sports writer and he just said hey I I have a mystery and maybe you can solve it for me and he starts to go into this story of how when he was in flight school in Denver at the end of 1997 the beginning of 1998 he was driving from Denver to his home in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And as he was driving through Lincoln, Nebraska, he heard a national title football game broadcast between Michigan and Nebraska. And obviously 97 is the season that was split between the AP and coaches poll for the Cornhuskers and Wolverines. And he said, you know, he'd he'd been so focused on airplane, you know, flying all of that stuff uh, for the last few months several weeks that he thought maybe this is happening and he kind of bought into it as he listened to the broadcast and you know I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this guy I cover college football for a living I've done so for a pretty long time and I'm like wow this guy is so gullible I can't imagine there's like a fake broadcast out there and if there is it's probably you know two college people who were drunk off like PBRs doing this right right and so I, I tell him, I'm like, yeah, I'll look into this. Give me your email address. I'll tell you what I find out, assuming that I'll find nothing. And then I kind of stumbled into what has been one of the most fun stories to report through my career as a college football writer, because not only did I find the people who did the game, but he calls and he said, one of the guys called and said, I actually have the audio of it. I'll send it to you. And listening to this game, as someone who covers this sport for a living, I was shocked with how real it sounded. And so it was fun to, it was a fun challenge to write this story. I wrote it in a few different ways before deciding to go with a narrative. Um, But I also embedded a bunch of the audio clips. I think there's about 10 audio clips throughout so that people can actually hear how real this game sounded, even though it's three guys, it ain't like just sitting in a, in a, sound booth um probably not unlike where you are right now looking at a piece of paper that says like first and 10 scott frost drops back throws incomplete and that's all there was and they created an entire realistic game off of that so it was it was a fun story to report a fun story to learn about um and i hope people enjoy it yeah i want to point out that we have retweeted and shared these from our michigan and nebraska and btn twitter accounts so fans listening can definitely find that story there And I want to follow up with a few more questions about the piece before moving on. Like you kind of laid out there, they literally mapped out each play and and how they were going to call each play. And and it was basically a full football game on paper. So when you were listening to the people, I presume you interviewed for the story, how, what kind of, what kind of guys were they? Like, were were they big fans? Like, it seems like an insane undertaking to have to map out a whole game and then execute something like this. Well, it was really one guy who kind of bought in, and now he lives in Minneapolis and works for American Public Radio doing classical music stuff, not sports anymore. But he was the person who, when his manager came to him and said, we want to do this, everyone wants this game, let's be the radio station that makes it happen. Ward Jacobson was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe I'm going to do something this dumb. And I'm in my 30s, I've been in this job so long, I can't believe this is this is just stupid. Um, but his manager wanted him to do it and he just went all in and everyone I talked to was just kind of like, you know, Ward is such a committed employee. He loved KFOR. So they asked him to do it. You know, he just went above and beyond. And if you're listening to the broadcast, Ward is actually doing all of the play by play. And then the two other guys just did color commentary throughout. Um, and there's a few giveaways throughout, uh, you know, they talk about like, a a piece of art that had been airlifted to Chicago for the national title game from Nebraska because because going to provide invite invite into the team when I think if if you're a very acute college fan you're probably thinking like no college football coach would have a large statue on the sideline during a football game um it's both unsafe and unrealistic but um yeah, it, it just was very cool to talk to these people, and they really hadn't thought about it in 20 years. So they kind of had fun as I was bringing up memories, and they said they hadn't even listened to the audio since since they did it. Right, and not to give away too much more of the story, but you did mention that in 1990, 
eight, I guess this would have been, fans actually showed up in Huskers gear to listen to the fake broadcast in Lincoln, Nebraska. And if you know anything about Nebraska fans, like that doesn't surprise me at all. They will, they are hyped for anything and everything Nebraska Cornhuskers, and I really enjoyed that uh, that anecdote. Yeah, they sold tickets to a bar downtown, and this was the one piece that I was frustrated. I couldn't figure out the name of the bar downtown, so if any Nebraska fans are listening, it was on the corner of 84th and O Street, I guess, and it was this bar, and they sold tickets, you know, a few dollars a head to come in and drink beer and listen to this game, and the manager was unsure if if people would really buy in, you know, People hadn't listened to games just on the radio for a while. They'd always had the option of TV, at least, you know, in the in this recent era of college football. So he was unsure if anyone was going to show up and turned into a standing room only thing for, for Cornhusker fans. Yeah, that's awesome. And as you pointed out, it, it did sound real when I was listening to those snippets you put in the uh, story. It did sound amazingly real, especially, like you said, with there not being digital editing capabilities. It's crazy to me how uh, much work went into it. Um, and at the risk of alienating half the the readers of this story uh, on your on the athletic, who do you think after you know looking into this game and, and obviously being a Michigan grad and, and studying the teams, who do you think would have won that matchup in 1997? <laughs> I think it would have been a really good game. I can't necessarily say one way or the other. Um, I would have been seven years old at the time. Uh, so, so I didn't have a chance to watch them in person, but it's fun because actually, you know, in Twitter now and, and in the comments section, there's sort of this back and forth. So it's, you know, life imitating art, uh, imitating life sort of a thing. That's what my editor had said, because it's the comment section in Twitter now. It's just, well, Nebraska would have crushed them. Scott Frost was such a better quarterback than Brian Greasy. And then the Michigan fans are saying, no, we had Charles Woodson. And so it's the debate that this has sort of brought up in 2018 is the exact debate that was happening 20 years ago. So it's been kind of a fun aftermath effect of this story. Yeah, two very passionate fan bases, no doubt. And we're going to have some fun with it this week at BTN as well. And we'll get into that uh, present day matchup a little bit later. But I I did want to ask you a couple of questions about your time and experience at The Athletic so far, because I think a lot of fans and people in sports media look at The Athletic with a level of fascination because it's constantly kind of growing and you guys are doing all this really good work. So just working for The Athletic in general, how were you approached to join and how has that experience gone? Because it seems like you've been able to do some really cool projects like the one we just talked about. Yeah, well, I was, um, I was, I guess, currently unemployed when I had been uh, approached by the person who's now one of my editors at The Athletic about the possibility of joining. I'd been with ESPN for six football seasons covering football and basketball uh, in both the Big Ten and Pacific Northwest country. And um, so I, after the layoffs at ESPN, I'd spent a few months sort of deciding, you know, do I keep wanna, do I want to keep writing about college football? Do I want to keep writing about sports? You know, this was kind of a break where I could research other opportunities. Is, is there another form of writing that might interest me? Um, but ultimately this opportunity came up and they basically said, you know, you, you sort of have quirky ideas from time to time about college football. Why don't you just come and write about those things and follow whatever stories sort of interest you? And that's basically what I've done. And it's, it's been a lot of fun because there are stories that I had wanted to write for a while and just sort of things that take a while to do, you know, this piece that we've been talking about, the Michigan-Nebraska story. I've spent large chunks of the last few weeks working on this just to get all the interviews done and and transcribe the entire audio of the game. And, you know, there's a lot of places where that might not be considered a great usage of time. And, you know, I spent most of my July researching the 1918 football season through newspapers of the time where that might not have always been something that bosses would think like you're spending an entire week reading newspapers from 1918 um but my editors have really been great at the athletic to sort of give us range um to follow those stories that naturally interest us yeah well i've had uh, a handful of your colleagues on and every time i do i definitely recommend to my audience to to subscribe because it is uh definitely a good investment there's a lot of good stuff like i've said and uh for your career you went to you mentioned you went to Michigan, and even though you're a West Coaster now, you obviously know the Big Ten landscape. So which years, uh, or 
kind of what athletic years were you at Michigan and which moments stand out to you from your time on campus and, and covering the Wolverines? So I actually grew up in Minnesota and we moved to Michigan uh, just outside of Ann Arbor when I was in junior high. So I, you know, in Minnesota, my mom taught at the U and so we were around that athletic environment a lot, went to a ton of games at the barn. Um, we were more of a basketball family for sure growing up. Um, but there wasn't necessarily a ton of Minnesota football prestige at that time, I would say. And then um, coming to Michigan, living outside of Ann Arbor, you know, we got to Michigan and it was like, you know, Michigan football was God. And it was so important. And everyone crafted their Saturdays around around the games, uh, which was a different experience for us. And then I went to Michigan and actually my first game as a student there was the Appalachian State loss. So I think I'd only been to maybe one or two games before then with some friends who their families had season tickets or something. But, you know, I got my student section shirt and I'm ready for my first game as a student and uh, Michigan lost to Appalachian State. It's like, oh, maybe this is a this is a little weird. So I was there for the last year of Lloyd Carr and the three years of the Rich Rod era and then covered the program for, I believe, the first three years of Brady Hoke. Yeah. So a lot of familiarity with the Wolverine program. Yeah, first game on BTN, that Appalachian State game. And this is like deja vu. Exactly. Because I've had uh, Nicole Auerbrock on a couple of times, mm-hmm. and that was her first game as well. And it's crazy. You yeah, two both we came from class. yeah. You, you two both came from Michigan, and there's not a journalism school in Michigan, right? Yeah, it's just the Michigan Daily, which I am. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Michigan Daily. It was such a good training grounds for so many people. There's you know colleagues in sports, but also outside of sports who've climbed the ranks. Um, and sort of everyone credits what they learned about journalism to the fact that it was a totally student run operation. There was never a quote-unquote adult in the room as we were putting the paper together every night, which I think really allowed us to have debates and conversations um, and processes to be a real newspaper, to have to rely on ourselves, to know that there wasn't sort of the safety net that if we didn't get it done, you know, someone was going to fix it for us. It was it was all on us every night, and that pressure existed constantly. Yeah, for sure. It's clearly it's paid off for you guys. Um, one more question before we move on to – some current football talk. I just want you to describe the philosophy kind of behind West Coast, Best Coast, because it's the name of a, a column you do, you know, as a West Coaster now. It, explain it to us in a way, us Midwesterners, in a way that we can comprehend, because uh, I, I don't know that we know the lifestyle as well as you do. Well, I came to the West Coast when uh, I'm, ESPN moved me out here in 2014, and I had only been, I think, I had never really been to the West Coast. They, I flew out to look for apartments, and that was my first time to Oregon. My second time to the West Coast was when I drove from Michigan to Oregon. And so I was seeing everything with new eyes, for sure. Um, but I've appreciated the lifestyle out here. It's very easygoing. There's a lot of things that people appreciate out here, like coffee, um, which are things that I appreciate. It's not a super, at least Portland I can speak to, is not a super early rising city, which I also appreciate, um, though there are not many coffee shops that are open early, which is tough sometimes. It's very it's very laid back, which um, I think is kind of the best coast ideal in terms of, you know, living, living life slowly. I, I have a friend who said that you know, she has a sloth lifestyle, which I think is sort of the West Coast lifestyle where anything worth doing is worth doing slowly. Um, and so I've, I've embraced that as a West Coaster. Some we all can aspire to for sure. Um, we'll move on now to the past weekend in college football. Well, actually, we'll, we'll look back a little bit and then uh, move on to the, this upcoming weekend. So first, we got to address it. The Big Ten lost a record seven games in non-conference opponents. So there's kind of no way to sugarcoat that. And each week I asked for my guests' initial impressions of the weekend that was, uh, that was in, in both the Big Ten and nationally. So we'll start in the Big Ten, Chantel. Just what were your overall impressions from the Big Ten's weekend that they'd probably like to forget? Well, I think in general this has just sort of been a very bizarre football season. Um, outside of Alabama, I can't necessarily say that there's a team that I've watched and thought, uh, yeah, they're really good every time I turn on the TV and I don't think you necessarily to win the national title or to make the college football playoff. You don't 
have to be super consistent by week three. Um, we've definitely seen teams that have not been that way before they make the playoff, but I think I've been surprised by the lack of other teams. Excuse me as I let my dog outside. Um, I think I've just been a little bit surprised by the fact that I've been kind of unwowed by a lot of teams that there were games that I think were closer than they should have been. There are teams that have been unranked that have upset teams that I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to see those results. And I think through all of last weekend, it was just sort of game after game. You're seeing top 25 teams struggle with some non top 25 opponents. There's obviously games where that wasn't the case. Um, there were games like Boise state, Oklahoma state that I thought was going to be closer than it was. And then you have teams like Oregon only beat San Jose State by 13. And so it was sort of a a day long where we came into the weekend thinking, oh, there are a ton of great games on the docket. And just game after game, you're like, oh, I didn't really expect it to go that way. Um, So I guess in that way, it was it was an interesting and fun weekend of college football. I don't know if all the Big Ten fans will feel that way, but as someone that just sort of takes in the landscape of the whole sport it was an unexpected weekend I would say yeah from my perspective I mean the the Wisconsin and Northwestern results were especially shocking because you consider the expectations for both teams entering the season for Northwestern to lose to an Akron program that's never beaten a Big Ten team at least since the 1890s and Wisconsin to lose at Camp Randall Stadium against a team that blew out last season in BYU it was wild so what do you think is wrong with a team like Wisconsin that came into the the season with such high expectations, college football playoff aspirations. How does this happen, do you think, in um, so like in week three, so early in the season, losing to a team like BYU? So let's give a little bit of credit to BYU. I think that is a program that Kalani Sataki in year three has trending in the right direction. The improvements that they've made from last year are significant. Um, let's, let's not discredit that by any means. You just look at what they did in week one. They And Arizona is not necessarily having a standout season thus far. But to hold Khalil Tate to 14 rushing yards on eight carries right out of the gates, um, you know, BYU is not a pushover team. I don't necessarily think that they are a top 10 team, but to say, you know, Wisconsin really, you know, I, I do not put the Wisconsin loss necessarily on the same level as the Northwestern loss. I think BYU is better than people give it credit for. But if you kind of sort of look at what's going on, what's wrong, I think the difference with this Wisconsin team this year, at least one that stood out to me, was that they're giving up some bigger plays. You, This is a team that last year, I think, finished third in terms of uh, giving up 10-yard plays. They only gave up 123 all season. And through three games this year, they've given up 34. You know, that's that's almost like, you know, it's just it's more than I thought we would see from them. And so if you're looking at, okay, well, how are teams getting first downs? If you're giving up 10-yard plays, those are automatic first downs. And so I think defensively, that was just something that stood out to me Um about about that game about the season so far for Wisconsin and if you look at teams that make the playoff generally if you're giving up a ton of 10 yard plays um that's not a good thing yeah a long way to go but that's definitely a good stat and something to keep an eye on as we move along here with the Badgers um on a positive note Ohio State did save a little bit of face for the Big Ten beating a very solid TCU team down in Texas did you get to watch much of that game and uh if so what are your thoughts on what you've seen out of the Buckeyes so far who have been pretty dominant so far and scored a lot of points uh, on their way to a 3-0 record. Yeah, I didn't watch a ton of it uh, just because there were a few other games that were happening, especially in my neck of the woods, as that was happening. Um, But I think, you know, from even before the season started, Ohio State was a team that I I had uh, sort of – I. I've always had them in my in my playoff race. I think they're if they're not in it, they're going to be right in there at the end of the day. Um, so to see them beat TCU, uh, top 15 team, not super surprising. I think the way that Dwayne Haskins has played so far this season, um, I've been really impressed with him. He's completing passes left and right, uh, only has one interception on the year, surprisingly against Oregon State. But um, I had watched that Oregon State game that worried me a little bit defensively, but I think they kind of got their ducks in a row, and 
they're still in my in my playoff race. Yeah, they look really solid. And moving over to the SEC now, LSU picked up a uh, second top ten win for that program this season so far. We already knew Georgia and Alabama were really good. Auburn's really solid. And now with those four teams, the, the top of the SEC is looking great once again. So just from what you've seen, how much separation do you think there is between the SEC and some of these other Power 5 conferences at this point, especially after I think a conference like the Big Ten unquestionably took a step back this past weekend? Yeah, I think the SEC, you know, there's a lot of this. I joke about like, oh, the East Coast bias of college football in my West Coast column. But you look at a conference like the SEC right now, um, the SEC West, they're just they're just stacked. They are such a talented conference. And to have teams like that, to have players like that, where you have the opportunity to get those wins throughout the season, you know, I, I would not be surprised if we're looking at another playoff this year that has two teams from the SEC just because the top of that conference is so talented. And then you look around at the rest of the country – there are conferences like the Pac-12, like like the Big Ten in some ways that seem to be taking a bit of a backseat in terms of that top-tier talent, whereas the SEC is just loading it on with those teams that are showing up to play and showing up really well. For sure. And uh, we can look ahead now to week four in college football as conference play really kind of gets in full swing in the Big Ten and elsewhere. And we'll start with a big Pac-12 matchup out in your neck of the woods, college game day headed out to Eugene, Oregon for number seven Stanford at uh, the number 20 Ducks. Will you be out there for that game? Yes, I will be down there. Taking in the whole kind of college game day atmosphere and all that? Yeah, it, it should be a fun uh, a fun weekend. Obviously, Lee Corso loves his Ducks, um, so I'm sure there will be some sort of antic happening there, but uh, it, it, I think as fun as that will be sort of the opportunity to get more of an idea about the identity of both Stanford and Oregon um, in that game is going to be really interesting to me. Yeah, I read your your column, uh, your West Coast column, and Oregon um, has kind of been unproven so far. I know you mentioned it, and Stanford's looked really good. How do you see that game playing out? And it really is what one of the marquee matchups of the uh, entire weekend in college football. I think it's hugely important um, just because – the Pac-12 South right now is just so confusing and kind of a tire fire. But if you look at the Pac-12 North, um, there's an opportunity for some good teams to come out of there. And I don't count Washington out of anything, even though they have that week one loss to Auburn. Um, but this this weekend is an opportunity to know more about Stanford, know more about its defense, um, see KJ Costello again, their quarterback. But I also think it's almost more important to see who is this Oregon team? They've kind of had up and down results. As I mentioned, they had that only a 13 point win against San Jose state. Um, Justin Herbert, I think is one of the best quarterbacks in the country. Uh, time and time again, he's listed as a potential first quarterback off the board in the NFL draft. I think this weekend, we're really going to find out who this Oregon team is. And it's, it's hard because if you were to tell me that one of these two teams wins by two touchdowns or that you know they they start running away with it after the first quarter I could I could believe you whether you said that was Stanford or Oregon because I just don't know enough about Oregon and I feel like Stanford what I've seen I think they can continue to put that together even more so both of those teams doing well um, as well as BYU continuing to do well, could mean a lot to Washington and its playoff hopes. And so in terms of, you know, why should Big Ten fans care? Why should SEC fans care about this game? This is a game that not only is important for these two teams, but it also helps to sort of bolster other teams' playoff resumes. Yeah, and our version of college game day, BTN Tailgate, will be in Iowa City for Wisconsin's visit to Iowa this upcoming weekend. And we've seen the kind of nightmare Kinnick Stadium can be for ranked opponents under Kirk Ferentz, especially at nighttime for whatever reason. So Wisconsin has to be kind of reeling a little bit at this point. Do you think the Badgers can recover and kind of counterpunch, or do you think Iowa uh, pounces at night there like we've seen them do to Michigan in the past years, to Penn State, to teams that you know might come in there sleeping on the Hawkeyes but find out really quickly that uh, it's no joke? I don't think Wisconsin's going to sleep on anyone. I think especially after last weekend, if, if anyone was sleeping, that was a wake-up call to sort of harken back to what I said earlier. Iowa has not had a penchant yet this season for long plays. 
um, ten-yard plays, and so defensively, I think Wisconsin's group will have an opportunity to um, to play a more stout game. I I'd imagine that Wisconsin comes out of there with the win. All right, and you've looked into these programs closer recently because of the piece we touched on at the top of the show. But how do you see this year's version of Nebraska and Michigan playing out? Obviously, so much hinges on whether Adrian Martinez can suit up for Nebraska. But how do you see uh, with you know kind of the history behind it? I don't think that'll really have any. Uh, impact, but it, it does add a little bit of intrigue. How do you see this matchup playing out in Ann Arbor coming up this weekend? Well, I think it's funny because as I was talking to a bunch of these Nebraska people for for the research on this this article that I wrote, the video of Scott Frost came up um, from after the Orange Bowl where he's saying, you know, if you think Michigan's better, go ahead and vote for them. And I would imagine that with Scott Frost now as the head coach of uh, of the Cornhuskers, that is a video that may or may not have been playing inside the Michigan football facilities this week. Um, But I think the home field advantage, uh, the sort of questions that we have with Martinez at quarterback for Nebraska, I'm going to give this game, I think, the edge. I think it'll be closer than some people think, but um, I think Michigan is going to edge it out. So what are your thoughts overall on the Michigan program? I know it's, it's a really polarizing topic, especially in Ann Arbor, even nationally, just with the type of figure Jim Harbaugh is. We're in year four now, and some goals have been left unachieved. There's been plenty of talent passed through Ann Arbor while Harbaugh's been there. But like I said, some of the, uh, some of the things that Harbaugh's there to do have not been accomplished. So what are your thoughts as an alum, as a national reporter on the Michigan program as a whole? You know, I think Michigan, it's, it's a tough – it's a tough situation, right? Because you look at other programs around the country that sort of have the same situation where they were so strong for so long, they competed for so many national titles and it just hasn't been that way recently. I think there's been a lot of underachieving and, and I try and I definitely don't buy into sort of the gut reaction of fans where they say, ah, you know, fire this guy, hire this guy, whatever. In terms of, you know, the sort of pride that Jim Harbaugh brought to Michigan and, you know, sort of the hometown guy coming back, um, I think that's been really, really valuable. But at the end of the day, it's about winning. And against the rivals that Michigan has, Michigan hasn't competed as well as as I think um, they want to, as I think they should. I don't necessarily think that it's, it's fair to say that someone needs to have a, you know, 10 and 0 record against all of their rivals. Um, but I think to expect them to compete in all of those games, um, if you want to be on level footing as the teams in the SEC West, in the SEC, those teams that are consistently competing to be in the college football playoff, that's part of it. You have to beat your rivals. You have to beat um, the teams that are between you and your conference title before um, you get to the playoff, with the exception of maybe an SEC team last year. But um, I, I just think that's sort of the part that has been the most surprising to me with uh, the Harbaugh tenure. All right, Chantel, we're going to take it back outside the Big Ten a little bit before we wrap up. I want you to tell uh, uh, me and the fans listening about some players out west we should know about, or just outside of Big Ten country in general, because, you know, here in the Midwest, after that game, that last game wraps up around 11, get our Saturday night started, and I might not remember who's on TV after that, so... Who am I missing out on here in Big Ten country that uh, I should know about outside of the conference? Well, the first name that pops to mind is maybe a name that uh, some Cornhusker fans would know. It would be LaVisca Chenault. He caught that big pass um, from Steven Montez in the Colorado win. I've been really impressed by by him, the strides he made from last year. He wasn't, he wasn't a huge player for the Buffs last year, but I think just the way he has played this year, the people that I have talked to um, – in terms of uh, evaluation, uh, the coaches around the program, uh, outside of the program, they just speak so highly of Lovisca Chenault, as well as Stephen Montez, the quarterback for the Buffs. Other players, I mentioned him earlier, but Justin Herbert is a name that I think you should know. I was chatting with a scout recently, and I asked him, you know, three three games into the season, if the if the season ended right now and you had to go to your boss and say, this is the one guy um, that we should, you, you know, put all of our eggs in this basket from the West Coast. Who would you pick? And he didn't even hesitate. He said Justin Herbert. You know, his his completion percentage hasn't been great yet against some like lesser competition, but he's putting up big numbers. He's hitting the deep ball. Uh, I've been really impressed with how he's grown over the last few years. 
and sort of that projection of him over the last three seasons and Eugene moving forward, at least from an NFL perspective, is um, really intriguing. Uh, so those would be probably two or three names that, um, and I know the Buffs aren't playing this weekend, but names to watch out for. And I think keep an eye on Bryce Love. He's yet to sort of have a ton of those Heisman moments, but um, I've got to believe that he's just knocking on the door and waiting. Um, we're going to see him. All right, what's the deal with Pac-12 after dark? Why do weird things always seem to happen out west uh, <laughs> when the clock strikes or past midnight? You know, I actually did an investigation into this when I was at ESPN, and I'm trying to remember exactly what I wrote. But I I, um, I researched a bunch of different scenarios about why maybe it gets weird after dark in the Pac-12. Um, I reached out to Neil deGrasse Tyson to ask him if maybe something about playing under the stars. Um, he did not get back to me, but one of his associates <laughs> did. Um, ultimately, it has nothing to do with playing under the stars. Uh, I believe whatever their planetarium is, is called. I'm blanking on it right now, but they had said maybe it was the change in temperature. Um, I had reached out to a sleep specialist to, to ask if maybe these night games out in the Pac-12 because they get to sleep in later could have an effect that was potential. You know, I just don't know. It's fun because you never know what's going to happen, and it's just sort of consistent that time and time again we have these games that you think um, – we definitely know it's going to happen or it's definitely going to be boring. And it's just whiplash in the other direction that, you know, someone makes an insane play or a, a trick play that you've never seen before. Um, I don't know. It just gets kind of, kind of weird after dark. And uh, as a college football fan, especially those on the East coast, I think it's worth pouring yourself a coffee, a cup of coffee and staying up for it. Well, whatever it is, I think Iowa fans can relate. Cause I kind of mentioned earlier, weird things happen at Kinnick stadium at night and teams lose when people might not anticipate them losing going in and we might see it again this weekend so we'll have to keep an eye on that and for my uh, last question Chantel I'm going to keep it in Iowa City because I do a segment to close it out every week called uh, the big moment of the week the B1G moment and that's trying to touch on something unique that happens in college football each week something special maybe something that doesn't relate to the football field as much as it does to uh, kind of the fabric of the game behind it so this week, my big moment uh, was the Iowa Wave, which happens every week and uh -huh. has been kind of cemented as a really cool tradition in college football. But this week, I think it had a little extra significance because Dalton Ferguson, who is a player on Iowa, was literally waving to his twin daughters in the hospital who had been uh, born recently uh, prematurely. So I think that was just yeah. a really cool added layer, a special layer, um, to see him you know, waving up at the Children's Hospital and we showed a picture on the broadcast of his, uh, his twin daughters. It was just a, a cool moment. So I didn't know if anything had uh, popped up in, in your viewing experience in the last weekend in college football or this season at all that we need to know about. But if you have any big moments, uh, we'd be glad to hear them. Well, I don't think I can necessarily follow <laughs> that one up. That's definitely, I think that Iowa Children's Hospital wave um, is something that everyone kind of fell in love with last year. It's, you know, we love this game. I love this game because of, you know, the lives that exist in between all of the football and within all of it and I think especially seeing Dalton knowing what that hospital means to his family his young family uh it was a really beautiful moment so I don't want to even try to try to pick something else because I I don't think there was a better moment in terms of in terms of life that exists within football last weekend all right well said Chantel we've been very generous with your time thank you for bringing some insight especially from out west uh into our Big Ten Midwestern Lives here, and uh, appreciate you coming on, and, and maybe we can do it again soon someday. Thanks. All right, thanks once again to Chantel for joining me. A lot of good stuff from her, and I expect nothing less because every time we talk to someone from The Athletic, it's always a great interview, and uh, she represented them well, as all those writers do. All right, move along now to our weekly stat head segment with BTN researcher Harold Shelton, who broke down what was a difficult weekend for the Big Ten. Um, definitely took some some hits on the field uh, in, in perception nationally. Did have some bright spots with Ohio State moving on uh, or moving past TCU to remain undefeated. Uh, some shockers in Wisconsin and Northwestern both losing. And some uh, other just interesting games that played out and, and 
kind of diagnose what went wrong and the paths forward for some of those teams that either lost or remained undefeated, like Ohio State and a Penn State, and kind of how it all fits into the Big Ten and national narratives. So let's get into it right now. It's weekly stat head segment with BTN researcher Harold Shelton. All right, I'm excited to welcome back, as I am every week, BTN's in-house stat head Harold Shelton, and this week bring him in to help make sense of a head-scratching week across the conference. H, welcome in. How's it going? I'm doing well. Uh, better than the Big Ten, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully we can bounce back this week. Yeah, plenty of losses. There were seven losses to uh, non-conference foes, which I believe is a record for most out-of-conference losses in one weekend for the Big Ten. And there are plenty to choose from, but I guess we'll just start uh, the highest shock level. Which loss surprised you most from this past weekend? Most people just kind of expected the Badgers to roll through non-conference as they normally do, uh, especially with Iowa coming up this week. You know, they had won 41 straight non-conference home games. You know, they've been completely dominant in those games. Uh, and BYU pretty much controlled most of that game. It was really surprising. I mean, we're known, we know Wisconsin had this great run defense, and they gave up 191 rushing yards to a BYU team that has trouble scoring. So I thought that was very, uh, very interesting to see. You know, the big question coming into the offseason, or coming into the season was, you know, how will Wisconsin replace all that production on defense? And we just all kind of assumed it'd be a plug-and-play situation. And clearly missing seven starters took its toll, and you could see it in that game. Yeah, entering the season, Wisconsin had such high expectations and I say they still do even though they took a hit this past weekend so we'll start big picture with them and kind of zoom in is there still a path for them a lot of things got to play out but is there still a path to a potential college football playoff berth for the Badgers uh there is a path but their margin for error is gone um I don't know if you can recover from a home loss to an unranked team and get all the way back without losing another game and I'm sure they would probably be they'll probably be BYU fans the rest of the year. Like they can't afford to have BYU be a six and six or seven and five team. They need BYU to also be a good team while taking care of their own business. The good news is this year their schedule is much harder than it was a year ago. You know, in the East you still have to play Penn State, you still play Michigan. So if Iowa winds up being better than expected, that would also help. But they pretty much have to run the table and win in Indy, I think, to get in. All right, so definitely a tall task. And that loss was significant on the national stage. Uh, this next loss we'll talk about was not quite as significant if you're thinking college football playoff, but it was still, I think, very shocking and surprising. And that's Northwestern's loss to Akron, a game they led uh, by double digits to a team and a program that you would not expect to come in and, and beat a Big Ten team like Northwestern. What happened in that game? How did Northwestern uh, ultimately fall to the Zips, and what does it mean for the Wildcats program? Yeah, I mean, you thought, you know, Northwestern going up 21-3 at half, you know, Clayton Thorson finally getting getting into the end zone through the air. You figured Northwestern had figured some things out, would be in good shape going to 2-1, and one, going into the bye. Then the second half happens. They give up 36 points. You know, a pick six, a bunch of big pass plays through the air that they allowed. And now we're sitting here at one and two and we're wondering what's wrong with Northwestern. You know, some people thought they were a dark horse pick to win the West. Now, granted, they haven't played a conference game yet, so that's still in front of them. But, you know, the way the offense looked against Duke and then the way the defense looked against Akron, I, there's definitely some questions there. Any other losses from this kind of, uh, you know, ugly weekend in Big Ten play that stood out that caught your eye that – might um, you know project some things going forward, or is this you just want to flush the rest of the weekend and move on? Uh, I thought the Maryland loss was very odd, uh, considering how they looked against Texas. You know, they followed up. You know, kind of sleptwalk for the first half against Bowling Green, and then put them away and won by thirty on the road. This Temple team was zero two. They lost to Villanova. They lost to Buffalo, and they completely dominated the Terps in College Park from start to finish. Bad quarterback play, couldn't run the ball. You know, I thought for sure Maryland would be 3-0 and going into this Minnesota game, and now they've got real questions too. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, last year Maryland fell off, and we all kind of assumed it was because of the quarterback injuries, and that's why that hot start kind of fizzled. But, you know, now it'll be interesting to see if they if that was just a blip or if they can 
recover and, and regain some of that juice that they had. So definitely something to follow there. And, and, and it wasn't all bad across the conference. The most significant game was the Ohio State-TCU game, and Ohio State definitely put on for the Big Ten. Thoughts on their performances and what was the, their toughest test so far by far in a win over TCU? Yeah, I thought that TCU was very underrated. It kind of proved that way uh, in this game. A ton of team speed. You could tell they're extremely well coached by Gary Patterson. Uh, the fact that the Buckeyes were able, they faced some adversity. They were down eight. You know, Haskins was facing pressure. You know, he had, you know, he was getting coverages and blitzes that he hasn't seen so far as a starter. And for them to respond the way they did, offense, defense, and special teams, to turn an eight-point deficit to a 12-point lead in four minutes in the third quarter, I mean, that really shows you the talent that they have and the way they did it. I mean, it was a pick six from a defensive tackle. It's blocking a punt. It's, you know, throwing a dime to K.J. Hill in the end zone. I mean, you could tell that this Ohio State team definitely is extremely talented and absolutely a playoff contender. Yeah, and Ohio State's offense has been so dynamic, and the defense, is, if there's any concerns to be had, it probably it's on that side of the ball. But, like you said, the game-changing plays are made on defense in that game, and it kind of shows, I think, the you know versatility of that team. And, and I don't know if you have any of those same concerns about the defense after seeing three weeks now, but the offense, I think we know, can get it done. Do you think the defense is uh, – still a weakness of, of sorts for them or does that big play ability to be able to get takeaways kind of uh, balance that out? Uh, I would say weakness but there's there definitely some concerns I mean we saw in week one against Oregon State when they gave up the 78 yard run and the 80 yard run and you're thinking well Jordan Fuller didn't play in that game. He comes back Rutgers doesn't move the ball but then you see them give up the longest play from scrimmage in Ohio State history on a run and you're like okay this could still be an issue we know the front four is great. They got so many talented D linemen. The linebackers a little more of unknowns, and you know they play a pretty fast Penn State team coming up in a couple of weeks, and we'll probably know more about them at that point. Yeah, weakness on a team like Ohio State is a blessing for most other teams. So right. got to put that in perspective. Exactly. But you brought it up there. The Penn State Ohio State game could really have some huge significance and determine the course of that. Big Ten East in a couple weeks here. Oh, yeah. I mean, at this point, the way that Michigan State has looked, the way that Michigan has looked at times, Ohio State, Penn State could wind up being an East Division championship, much like this Wisconsin-Iowa game coming up could potentially be a West Division championship game. Yeah, we'll preview that Iowa-Wisconsin game in just a moment here. But first, I want to get your thoughts on Minnesota and what you make of them because you can kind of segue into this weekend with this topic. They take on the Maryland team that's kind of perplexing, like we just mentioned. What do you make of the Gophers and their 3-0 start? They've been really suffocating on defense. They have a NFL talent receiver in Tyler Johnson on offense. However, they have a serious injury at running back um, with uh, Rodney Smith. Rodney Smith, yeah. Rodney Smith blank, uh, out for the year with a knee injury. So what do you make of the Gophers and their outlook going forward with a, what looks to be a really solid defense? Yeah, so I'm kind of in wait-and-see mode with Minnesota because I know they started 3-0 and last year, and it was a very similar formula where, you know, they were able to run the ball when they wanted to. They played really good defense against mostly overmatched opponents. And then when conference play started, actually against Maryland, they wound up giving up a bunch of rushing yards. They lost at home, and they finished 5-7. and So, now granted, the Fresno State team they beat earlier this year is better than any team that they beat a year ago. So maybe there's, you know, some, uh, that's a confidence builder for them going forward. But the quarterback position is much better this year. I think they have more weapons on the outside. It's not just Tyler Johnson. Like, they've gotten other uh, contributions from Rashad Bateman and Chris Alden-Bell. We'll see if... You know, Bryce Williams can hold up. I mean, that's a lot of pounding for a true freshman to take, getting, you know, 30 carries multiple times. But I'm very curious to see if they can win in College Park. It's a very winnable game. And if they can get the 4-0, maybe the ball starts rolling for them. Definitely. And before we really get into next weekend's games, and this will kind of play into our, our discussion going into one of the games this, this coming weekend because Purdue faces a uh, very potent offense in Boston College. But we got to put – David Blau's performance into perspective because you are the stat head and, and he turned into a sti- uh, turned into a statistical performance that we rarely see in the Big Ten or anywhere across college football. David Blau 
approached 600 yards passing. Uh, I believe that's the second most all-time in Big Ten history. Came in a loss to Mizzou, but still very impressive. So if you could put his performance in perspective, and you have to think that kind of wins him the starting job in that battle with Elijah Sindelar, doesn't it? It produced such a, a very interesting team and a weird team. They play Eastern Michigan. They have 17 passing yards in the second half, <laughs> right? We don't know who the starting quarterback's even going to be for this game. Elijah Sindelar gets banged up. He's a game-time decision. You kind of figured if he wasn't hurt, he probably would have started this game. Instead, it's Blau, and he sets the Big Ten record for total offense and has the second-most passing yards in Big Ten history. I mean, that is, is unbelievable. They couldn't really get big plays through the air in the first two weeks. And against Missouri, they're throwing the deep all over the place. You know, I think that game had over 1,200 yards of offense in it. It was just a lot of fun to watch. Uh, but just for whatever reason, they still can't seem to get over the hump. You know, three losses by a combined eight points, and it doesn't get any easier with another explosive offense coming into West Lafayette. It could be 3-0, but could be that margin for error has Absolutely. been so razor thin. They've shot themselves in the foot a little bit. They've been fun to watch, but oh, like yeah. you said, they just can't pull it out, and they are really an intriguing team. If you're a Purdue fan, I know 0-3 is tough to swallow, but I don't think you can – you know, be too disappointed at this point. Still, I think the arrow's pointed up there, and, oh, and we'll see how they – I mean, they could – you know, things could feel a whole lot better if they can knock off a Boston College team that's been really good so far. Mm-hmm. So let's move ahead to this weekend. Um, what are you looking forward to in week four? We need to definitely dive into this Iowa-Wisconsin game that significance was dialed back a little bit just with Wisconsin's loss, but still a huge game. Big BTN tailgate's going to be there. Iowa has major aspirations. So does Wisconsin, the Big Ten West. So let's just start there in Iowa City. We got Iowa's really stingy defense going up against a Wisconsin offense that obviously has struggled to really find its footing. What are you looking for in that game, and, and how do you think that plays out? I mean, Wisconsin has pretty much had Iowa's number recently. I mean, we all talk about Kinnick and how hard it is to play at Kinnick, but Wisconsin's gone in there and won four straight times. You know, Iowa hasn't even scored an offensive touchdown against Wisconsin the last two games they've played. And even the game that they won in 2015 in Madison, they won 10-6. So they really haven't had their offense uh, have any success against the Badgers. I'd be curious to see if that changes. I feel like it's going to be another low-scoring, hard-hitting affair. I'm thinking like 19-13 or something like that. I mean, if Iowa can get the 19, I think they can win. Because Wisconsin's offense right now is extremely one-dimensional, and Iowa's got one of the best run defenses in the country. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that. Um, so far in the, in the four years of the, the East-West split, the winner of this game has gone on to Indy. So I'll be curious to see if that trend continues. Yeah, I mean, there's talk in amongst national media, and I think it's very realistic, that if Iowa gets this one, it's starting to set up like that 2015 season yep. where – that schedule looks pretty manageable, and the path to Indy opens up. And it started with a win against Wisconsin in the Big Ten opener. So we'll see if uh, you know we get some deja vu here. All right, we'll keep an eye on it for sure. It should be a fun game and a fun Big Ten tailgate show, so definitely tune into that. It's the first one this year. Mm-hmm. Other games in the Big Ten, your alma mater, Michigan State. I look to you always as the Spartan expert here at BTN. They take on a 3-0 Indiana team, and Michigan State is ranked in the top 25, but they haven't played necessarily like a top 25 team so far. Is this Indiana game were you if you're a, a Michigan State fan, and, and what have you seen out of the Hoosiers so far that makes you think this could be a uh, competitive game? I think it's a pivotal game for Michigan State. Uh, I think the urgency for this game is out of 10. Um, it's, it's a tricky game. Indiana's playing well. Uh, it's at night. I believe the... Uh, they're, Michigan State's a slight favorite, but they've played some close games in the past. The last time they went down there, they lost in overtime. You know, Indiana had the lead late in the fourth quarter last year before Michigan State rallied to win. Um, hopefully the bye week allows some guys to heal, most importantly, Cole Chewins. I feel like if he comes back and that line solidifies itself, then they'll be able to do the things they want to do on offense, and that should be enough, I would think. But Indiana, they've been able to run the ball really well with Stevie Scott. They've been over 200 yards in all three of their games on the ground. Peyton Ramsey's leading the conference at completion percentage. So Tom Allen's doing a really good job down there. Uh, but I think Michigan State's run defense, which is the best in the country uh, statistically so far, if they can shut down Stevie Scott, they should be able to win this game. 
And again, you kind of look to other seasons as parallels. A couple of years ago, Michigan State's season kind of went off the rails. Yep. They lost in Indiana. That kind of helped set it spiraling. And it doesn't help Michigan State's cause that Arizona State went and lost to San, San Diego, Diego State, State last yep. weekend. So it's going to be interesting to see how Michigan State responds. They have the bye week to get ready, and it should be a good matchup in Bloomington. Any other matchups that intrigue you? I know uh, we want to get to our stat of the week to look out for coming up because every week we've sat here and, and something has been surpassed, some big achievement has been uh, you know, reached. The Blau last week, we had Ohio State with the win total a couple weeks ago. Some big games from guys like Rondell Moore, Deshaun Jones in, in recent weeks. So is there anything looking ahead to week four that could be surpassed or reached this weekend numbers-wise? I know me personally, storyline-wise, I'm looking forward to Urban Meyer coming back. Right. You know, he was gone for three weeks. The team clearly looked fine without him. You know, they've scored 169 points in the three games, which is tied for the fourth most by any Big Ten team in the first three games in the last 100 years. And now Urban comes back. He's handed the keys to this Porsche or Maserati or whatever fancy car you want to use. And... You know, they play a two-lane team. It, you know, they should roll all over. But I'll just be curious to see what the crowd reception is like, if the offense looks any different, and, you know, will they be ready for Penn State in the week after that? And one more thing. Speaking of Penn State, I know you mentioned before we sat down here, they've kind of flown under the radar just because of their slow start against App State. But then they've, you know, put up over 100 points their last two games. They visited an Illinois team that looked better last week and, and is getting takeaways under Lovey Smith, but it's still giving up huge yardage numbers. So what are your thoughts on the Nittany Lions as they move toward that showdown with Ohio State and, and can't get caught napping as they go into a Friday night game in Champaign? Yeah, I would say it, it's funny how it works. You know, Penn State, you know, they're, they're down, about a minute left against App State. They rally to win. Ah, oh, they're not any good. They beat Pitt. Oh, well, Pitt's bad. Pitt goes out to be short to Tech. They kill Kent State. Oh, well, Kent State's bad. Okay, maybe. But people just kind of threw dirt on Penn State and just assumed that they wouldn't be able to replace all of these weapons that they lost. And all they've done is go out and score 51 points against Pitt, 63 against Kent State. They're trying to score 50 points in three straight games for the first time in school history. It's a lot of years of Penn State football. This offense is rolling right now, and it's not just Trace. They're getting it from Miles Sanders. They're getting it from K.J. Hamler. And I've said it all summer, Penn State has the best and most intriguing home schedule in the, in the conference, maybe even the country. So I think, all, I think the road to the Big Ten Championship goes through State College. So you know, Ohio State goes up there. Wisconsin goes up there. Iowa goes up there. Michigan State goes up there. They're going to have a big say in who wins this thing if it's not them. Yeah, I didn't expect Illinois to do much against South Florida. Really, they should have won that game. They squandered a big second-half lead or double-digit second-half lead. It seemed big because they kind of dominated um, in certain aspects of that game. And then you look at uh, Penn State and Illinois' common opponent, Kent State, Illinois needed a rally to beat Kent State. Penn State beat them 63-10. Right. So we'll see how that plays out, get us yeah. started in uh, our first action of the weekend on Friday, and uh, we'll take us right into another weekend of uh, Big Ten football, one with mostly conference games now as we exactly. really get into the meat of the schedule. <laughs> yeah, we kind of get the, get the uh, directional schools out of the way, even though, you know, the Big Ten – we're not really in a position to say that because the Big Ten struggled, but, you know, still, get them out of the way. And, and From a workflow perspective, <laughs> it's a lot easier for me. I'm exactly, sorry. exactly. Now you can kind of relax, take a little more football in, and uh, dive deeper, and we'll be back here next week. As always, the uh, Stat Head segment's been a lot of fun. Good stuff, H, and uh, same time, same place next week. Sounds good, man. Appreciate you having me on. All right. All right, one final thank you to Harold and Chantel for joining me. Keep moving here on the Take 10 Podcast as we really get into the conference play and the middle, I guess, of college football season. The, the non-conference play is pretty much behind us. Got a few matchups left just with the uh, unbalanced schedules, but really getting into the thick of it here, and the matchups will be coming hard and heavy now going forward, and we'll continue to bring interesting perspectives from outside the Big Ten and from the national stage into this podcast as we move along. So definitely, as I mentioned at the top of the show, be sure to subscribe and you won't miss a beat.
All right. A final thank you as well to my producer, Julie Bronder, who's been helping out and doing a great job lately. And also my assistant producer, Colleen Degnan as well, who's been helping out with the show. Couldn't do it without them. And uh, couldn't do this if I didn't have an audience out there who's willing to listen. So I thank all of you for listening. And we'll talk to you next time, hopefully with some better news. And as far as the scope of the conference goes, next week you're on the Take 10 podcast. And uh, until then, enjoy the games, and we'll see you next week.